I said, look, I've just gone completely mad. And he said, no, you haven't gone mad. You have mental illness. Um, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I didn't know what PTSD was. And he said, you know, you're, you're clearly terribly depressed as well. So he said, if you want to live, I, I can try and help you. No guarantee, but I'll try and help you. And I think that was the first time in a long, long time that I had any sense of hope that maybe I could get better, maybe, just maybe. That is Alan Sparks, and this is part two of episode 269 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. This is Osher Ginsberg, me, hi, hello, and this is part two of episode 269 with best-selling author and speaker Alan Sparks. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Alan Sparks, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S, and on Instagram, Alan Sparks underscore C-V. If you haven't heard part one, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. It's right before this one in your podcast feed. Um, something quite significant happened between Monday's show and today that uh, I wanted to just pop in and check in with you about. We announced, me and Audrey, my wife, uh, we announced to the world that we are having a baby. I'm so shit at that. The last couple of weeks when we've been telling family and friends, I'm just so bad at going, oh, so, by the way, at the end of August, there might be an extra person for your Christmas card list. Like, I get so obscure and Audrey's just, just tell them. So, yeah, uh, we're having a baby. And um, that's really exciting and scary and exciting and scary and overwhelming and wonderful. And I think that's a fairly normal reaction. So, yeah, we're all good here. Um, it's great. Our house is wonderful. Our life is wonderful. Uh, our family is wonderful already. And the fact that we get to add to this is freaking wonderful. Yeah. We're nicknaming the baby Chickpea right now because uh, we are sure that it is human, but we're not sure the sexual chromosome situation. Um, someone knows, but we don't. So yeah, it's baby chickpea right now. And uh, I guess we'll find out what that situation is. And, you know, well, as long, you know, honestly, people ask me, what do you want? I say healthy and human. That's it. That's it. Anything else is gravy, man. Very, very much. Uh, yeah. So chickpea is going to be along in the end of August. 2019. Until then, uh, Audrey's having naps, a lot of naps, and a lot of, you know, just kind of wanting to vomit, which apparently is quite normal and quite good. I guess I'm doing the expectant dad thing of reading lots and lots and lots of books and going, oh my God, what if that goes wrong? Uh, which I think is fairly normal as well. And yeah, kind of figuring out, well, I've, uh, I've had a crash course in parenting of a 10-year-old on for about the last five years. So I'll be sweet when we get to there. But the first 10 I've never done before. So Audrey's done it before. So yeah, a uh, bit crash coursing in there. So lovely that so many people reached out. Thank you so much to offer both Audrey and I and Georgia, you know, your, your love and support. It's very, very sweet. And um, yeah, we're all looking forward to meeting this new human that's going to pop into the world along with many other humans that day, I'm sure. It's no secret that, and I've told you, when I met Audrey, it... it just literally, literally saved my life. Um, 
when I met Georgia and Georgia's effect on my life has given me a purpose and direction that I never, ever expected. And um, these two incredible women, they've given me just so much already. Um, over the course of our relationship, they've helped me heal, they've helped me grow. And now that the three of us get to share the experience of bringing up a child together, that's, you know, in the words of my friend Rick, it's puppy times a million. <laughs> so, um, if you need me, I'll be uh, reading a baby book or giving a back rub or running down the shops to get some ginger beer. Yeah. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let me tell you more about my guest this week. Uh, this is the second part of my chat with Alan Sparks. Alan is the Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales. He's the holder of the Cross of Valour, the Order of Australia, and the Commendation for Brave Conduct. He's a best-selling author, a best-selling, best-selling speaker. I don't know. He packs him in when he speaks. Um, he sailed a sailing boat around the world with his family, and he loves his rugby union. You can find him on Twitter at Alan Sparks, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S. He's also on Twitter, Alan Sparks, sorry, Instagram. He's also on Instagram, Alan Sparks uh, underscore CV is his uh, thing on Instagram. If you've not listened to part one, I highly recommend that you do. Here's a reminder of what Alan and I were talking about in part one of this episode. And this is 269A Social 3. Now, when we left off in part one, Alan and I were talking about trying to gain control of a life descending into chaos by reaching for things that might be less than healthy. Bad food, too much booze, not enough sleep. And that is where Alan and I pick up for part two. The feeling of grasping for control in that situation, because it's the feeling of lack of control. Absolutely. The feeling of grasping, I can control what I eat. I can control what I drink, 
this has made me feel good before when I eat this burger. This has made me feel good when I drink this beer. This has made me, f- I feel afraid. So I'm going to yell at that person to make sure I feel safe. And that stuff starts to escalate. And before you know it, you're eating, you know, terribly. You're shouting at people on the street. And you, you know, you're trying to keep yourself safe by doing these things. But all you're doing is sticking that accelerator down to the floor. Uh, you don't, and you don't realize it that, you know, what you think is keeping you safe is actually accelerating your demise. Yeah. And you know, just how damaging and how dangerous sleep deprivation is. You know, one of, the, one of the first things that I lost was my sleep patterns. And you know, people just do not realise how critically important good quality sleep is. And, and the reverse is how dangerous and damaging the lack of sleep is. And certainly when your mental health starts to deteriorate, you know, for me, that's the first thing that's got to be pulled into check. You know, my diet, what I eat today, is so different to what I used to eat. Um, processed carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate, I didn't realise how damaging that is to my, to my body, to my brain, and how critically important it is just to maintain movement. So they're my three foundation stones I'll work on today, my sleep, my nutrition, and my movement slash exercise. If my three foundation stones are solid, then I know physiologically I'm healthy. And I, and I, can, I know, I mean, I've got all the data in front of me that tells me how healthy I am. <laughs> but, but back then when I started to become unwell, all those things went out the window. And if only I had known what, what we need to have. So what I do now, as far as my work with the first responders, is is give them that information, not only as to what you should to do, but but why why you you desperately need to do this stuff. Yeah. And for those that are mentally unwell, how important it is is to to rebuild your foundation stones. What did what did the moment? I mean, obviously there were people that cared about you very much at this point. My when, wife, yes. Yeah, <laughs> when you were uh, very very sick. Uh, what was I, I know like the turning point for me was when I had known Audrey for a while now and she had somehow managed to pierce the veil of this darkness that was around me and convinced me that you know what if all these things that you're worried about actually start to happen don't I will still be here and that was enough to get me out of the give me enough hope to start putting the work in to get better and the, it's the thing that still gives me hope. I still do the work every day to yeah. stay better. Yeah. One does not achieve this and it's all over. No, no, no it's no. a daily it's an thing, man. On, it's an ongoing every project. Every single yeah. day I, yeah. get to, I get to do this. Yeah. I'm grateful that I get to do it so I don't live the life I used to live. But what for you was the, was the moment? Because you, you were very lucky because you're still here. What for you was the moment? Oh, it's one of those sliding door ball moments. Um, I was on my way uh, from my desk with my service revolver to the bathroom to end my life. So I was literally 10 metres away and a colleague walked in and saw the gun in my hand and took the gun from me. So that was a pivotal moment. Did they just see the look in your eye? Uh, He asked me a question. The classic question, are you okay? <laughs> Gee, I, I've heard that a few times. And what did you say? Well, I can't repeat on, <laughs> on a podcast. Um, but there's a certain, certain words um, were, were replied that gave him the knowledge that, no, I was not okay. And He took the weapon out of your hand? Yeah, yeah. And um, then drove me home. 
and wished me all the best. Um, my wife was then called on the police radio because my wife was a cop. She told me that um, they said, Al's not well, you better get home. <laughs> Bit of an understatement. And a colleague, God love him, um, he had heard what had happened and he had arranged for me to be taken by Deb to the hospital where I was to see a crisis counsellor. Probably that's the most pivotal moment, Osh, where um, for the first time I actually disclosed what was going on. And I had reached a, a terrible, terrible state where for a long time I had been suicidal, planning to end my life, but then I started to have some really terrible nightmares about taking my family out. And Deb, she had no knowledge of this. But when I was with the counsellor, and Deb was there with me, all of this stuff came out. And um, the, the counsellor, who I knew professionally through the hospital, and Deb and I knew personally because of sport. She played soccer, um, basketball depths. And suddenly, Sue's hearing me say all these things, and Deb's there sitting beside me and, and just hanging on to me. And Sue wanted to schedule me because she was terrified that I was going to you know, really harm my basically, family. Basically, to, to, to schedule you, to commit you, to take you, hold you without um, consent. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And as a cop, um, to be scheduled, nah, not a good thing. That's that's the end of the line. That's that's your where job, that, your career's over. Everything's gone. Everything has gone. So. Deb said to Sue, um, I'm really sorry, Sue, but you're not going to do that to my husband. Um, I'm taking him home tonight. You can bring as many police as you want to put in my home to keep my daughter and me safe, but I'm taking my husband home tonight. Had Deb not done that, then I don't think there was any way possibly that I would have survived another few days, I would have found some way to end my life very, very quickly and very determinedly. So the fact that Deb was prepared to do that, that was extraordinary. And the next morning, um, I had to go to see the police medical officer who was a local GP who I loved and adored, beautiful old Scotsman. And again, I just completely lost it. And he then got on the phone to the one and only psychiatrist in Coffs Harbour and explained that I was not well and he needed to see me immediately. So Deb again took me up to see the psychiatrist, which was the local mental health unit, which we had a lot of professional engagement with. And I was taken in before the psychiatrist and, uh, yeah, he was very matter-of-fact. He said, Al, do you want to live or do you want to die? Your choice. And um, that, that was a very, very tough, tough morning for me. I think it was a realisation of where I'd actually got to. And, um, you know, I, I still feel extremely humiliated about being in that state that I'd, I had got to that state, let myself get to that state. I was full of shame and guilt and, and uh, still extremely suicidal. I could have ended my life there in a heartbeat. And um, I, I said, look, I've just gone completely mad. And he said, no, you haven't gone mad. You have mental illness. Um, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I didn't know what PTSD was. And he said, you know, you're, you're clearly terribly depressed as well. So he said, if you want to live, I, I can try and help you. No guarantee, but I'll try and help you. And I think that was the first time in a long, long time that I had any sense of hope that maybe I could get better, maybe, just maybe. And I was prepared then to do anything to get better. Because I, I, was, I was so ashamed of myself. I was, I was, it was horrible. 
and but but there was Deb um, just just sticking with me, yeah. sticking beside me. Just that you know, we started this conversation talking about community, Alan, and the community of your colleagues that rallied around you in that moment. Your colleague who could see that something was very clearly not okay. Yeah, but being brutally honest, Osh, um, back then, um, if a police officer dis- discloses or, or is evident is not mentally well, um, it's like you become a leper. Uh. Yeah, you, you're suddenly ostracised. You're, you're put out. There were a couple of mates who, who absolutely stuck with me. Yeah. But certainly Deb was at the forefront. Um, she was just, and to this day still is, just yeah. extraordinary. You're so, we're so lucky. We are, yeah. And, but it's just so imperative. Um, you know, it's the, 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 as you know, we met through, say, in Australia and the work that I do there, is that we do there. It's, it's talking about people affected by, you know, complex mental illness because it's not just the one person. It's like five people yep. at, at the minimum that go down when one person goes down. Because there's everyone that loves and cares, works with, is related to, is fathered, son, daughtered by, you know, it's it's yeah. a lot of people around. Yeah, um, and and I think also I do get annoyed where people are told a to speak up and p just go and get help, without really understanding that sometimes the actual help can be a really challenging time for people, because it's a sudden realization. Hey, guess what? I've got a mental illness, mm-hmm. or I might have multiple mental illnesses. This realization is, oh, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. Nope. And it's you are then opening yourself. You are completely exposing yourself to the rawest form possible. And just because you've gone to see a clinician doesn't automatically mean you're going to start a path recovery. So just to say to people, well, just get help. I don't agree with that. Help can help but you've got to understand the complexities. And fortunately, I was able to get in there and then to see a clinician that was available to me, who then would, would proceed and continue with my, my treatment. Whereas for many people, to try and get to see a, a good clinician is not impossible. Either their books are closed or there's a month, eight month or 12 month waiting list. Yeah. What, what would have happened to me in that situation? Yeah. Well, I'd... I'd I don't really want to think about it. No, and you're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Access to access to this kind of healthcare is so important in these critical phases. Yes. So so important it in is. these critical phases, particularly in communities like well, you said, the one psychiatrist. The services yep. in an area I can't imagine how many square kilometres, let alone what it might be like out in Orange and Dubbo out yep. there. Um, and this doesn't apply just to people like me, male. 38-year-old first responders, we're talking about everybody from young children today Mm. to our elderly who need access to high-quality clinical interventions. Yeah. I I can only relate to to my own thing and it took – I had some fits and starts because I really relate because I didn't want to have what they told me I had and I didn't want to – and magically I I was like, well – you told me to take these drugs only if I need them. So if I don't take them, I don't need them. 
Brilliant. Mm. <laughs> you know, I did that one. That's a smart brain thinking. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. It doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to tell you, tell you that for nothing. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work uh, because I didn't want to have the thing that they said that I had and I didn't want to need the drugs that they said I needed because these drugs were called antipsychotics and I didn't want to have to take an antipsychotic. I didn't want to, you know, it's not what I wanted. But then I realized that, no, I can't. I can't do this by myself. This is way bigger than me and my brain right now can't cope with the thinking ability that I have. I can't think my way out of this. It's like trying to bite my own teeth. I can't do this. I need someone else's ideas. Um, that took a long time and I had to get humbled with my face in the dirt a number of times before I finally accepted, okay, I better do this. What was it for you? When did the path to, okay, I'm on the train, let's do this. I was prescribed two drugs. One was a drug called Melorol, which is not used in Australia anymore, and the other were antidepressants. So Melorol was designed, from the psychiatrist's words, he said, you will not be able to form any intent to do anything whilst you're on this drug. So clearly that was designed to stop me hurting myself or hurting anybody else. Takes your volition away, basically. Yeah, and... Um, it, it just turned me into a zombie. But what it did do, it, it, it knocked me out so much I slept. And probably for the first two weeks, I slept more than I'd slept for the previous three years. Yeah. So I had to see the psychiatrist three days a week. That was the agreement. Either be an inpatient or come and see me three days a week. And again, it was that humiliation. My God, I've got to go and see a psychiatrist. No, <laughs> this can't be. But but if I don't, I'm not going to get better. So I was torn. You know, do I, don't I, do I, don't I? Some days I just would not want to go. And, you know, Deb would drive me in very rarely. Certainly when I was on the drugs, I couldn't drive in. But to leave that car, leave the safety of that car to walk into that clinic um, that was a tough walk. That was a really, really tough walk. To sit in there um, in the waiting room, because the, the mental health clinic was also the local methadone clinic. So often I would be sitting waiting with um, people who had addictions that I had um, engaged with professionally as a cop. Um, that wasn't a fun place to be, I can assure you. So there was many challenges to actually getting to see the psychiatrist. And then, but on the on the Melorol, um, after two weeks of being on that, I've gone, I can't. I cannot cope with this. So I ditched those. I said to the psychiatrist, no, nah, not going to take those anymore. But I do know that that two-week period was critical. That was a, a live-or-die period of my life. And just being able to sleep, then the antidepressants started to, to work. So over time, with the psychiatrist, um, he was able to ex explain clinically um, what PTSD was, how I had developed it, why I had developed it, what the treatment program was going to be. It was, a, it was quite hit and miss back then, which in many ways still is today, um, but it was quite hit and miss. But I, I wanted to get better and I wanted to go back to work as quickly as I could. That was so important to me to get... Because my work was my, was my life mm. and I wanted to show to everybody, I'm, I'm back, it's OK. So that was my goal was to get back to work. So... Um, I think he was a bit of a uh, forward plan thinker back then. The psychiatrist said, you know, clearly your physical health has deteriorated what it used to be. We're going to get rebuild that. So we started to rebuild my physical fitness levels um, and I became quite obsessed about doing that, getting my sleep patterns in order, removing alcohol from my life. 
and in hindsight, rebuilding my physiological health with the assistance of medication and therapy. So that went on for a while and the psychologist, sorry, the psychiatrist moved on. Um, so I had no clinical um, assistance any longer. It was, it was all up to me. So I worked very, very hard to get back to work, but um, that didn't eventuate. The department decided that I was not um, fit enough to come back to work psychologically and uh, proceeded to discharge me essentially without my knowledge and, and clearly against my will. So my police career came to a crashing end. <laughs> um, and you, uh, what did you do about that? Uh, ended up in a very dark place again. Yeah. Uh, that was a really challenging time of my Early life. Early in your recovery too. Uh, well, this was after 18 months, Osh, that mm. I got a phone call to say my career had finished. And then it was a case of uh, I was 40 years of age, uh, married with a child and... What am I good for? What can I possibly do with my life? Yeah. Um, the thing that I loved and cherished so much, had worked and given so much to, was ripped from me. Um, I've, I felt so discarded, um, so worthless, um, had no hope. So that was a very challenging period. And again, if I didn't have the support of my wife then, uh, the alternative could have been quite, quite terrifying. But she was a case of, well, let's just bunker down for a while, let's just get th absorb this and, and work through it. Uh, we don't have to make any decision right now, but let's just accept this is a situation and you've been really good as far as your health's concerned, you're building on that. Let's just focus on that for the time being, you know, keeping up your health and then we'll work it out. And then from, from there, things did work out, but I know deep in my heart I was forever searching to find something to give me my sense of worth back. That was critically important. Perhaps for you, Osh, and for, for everybody else who has a lived experience of mental illness, um, when your sense of worth is taken from you or you lose it, um, to regain it is critical to your long-term recovery. And I think that's uh, what I was actually all the time looking for. How can I get it back? So I went and I, I retrained. I set up different businesses, um, became qualified in different areas. But it was always looking for what is it that's going to allow me to say, I'm back. I'm, I've, I've made it back, and I'm very blessed that I was able to actually do that. <laughs> yeah, and in spades. You, yeah. Yeah, you, you really have, Alan. You, you, you really, really have. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean, let me, let me firstly ask you this. There's People who, like we like we said, what, what would you say to those who who live with or love someone that has a PTSD diagnosis? What would you say to them about what they're going through and what that means for their relationship? 
patience is vital because there is no piece of string that will tell you how long it's going to take a person to recover or manage their illness. Research as much as you can about what PTSD is. You don't have to work out what the cause is or go to the critical incidents, but just understand what the symptoms of PTSD are and how those symptoms can impact on a person's ability to function, first and foremost, just literally function, and how, how critically important it is for, for you as a carer to assist that person to rebuild their physiological health, to get their sleep, look after their nutrition and encourage them and assist them to start moving again just to, to let the body heal naturally and support. But, but I think so many people, when they see their loved one so devastated by a mental illness, they just want them to get better. They want them to get better really, really quick so they're not suffering anymore. But that can, can take a very long time. So understanding the illness, understanding what the person's going through and just being there to support them and ride the wave mm. or the waves that are going to take place in your life for however long it's going to take. There's going to be some highs, there's going to be some crashing lows. You're going to see a person who you don't know who's going to respond to you in ways that you never experienced before. You're going to suffer um, terrible abuse and and times hatred and it's going to be so hard and tough on you so you need to be you need to be ready for this and you need to build your own support base your own team around you to help you cope with this situation Mm. you have to shield your children or help them so it's going to be the most challenging period of your life the person who's suffering in many ways needs to be very selfish as far as focusing on their on their recovery and, and care process so it's a very complex situation, but um, having said that, if you are prepared to do whatever it takes to keep your partner um, on a path of, of recovery, then ultimately you will be the difference between potentially them living and dying. That's how, how important it is. And I, I believe that I'm alive today because I had a, a human being who was prepared to do whatever it took to care for me and, and help me. I, I will say the same thing, Alan. Absolutely. I there's yeah that there was someone in my life who was willing to deal with the other guy that showed up, yeah. <laughs> and in her words, sometimes bully him out of the room until I came back. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky for that. Yeah. I was. I was. I don't know how people get better by themselves. Well, that's that is a challenge, but it is a reality, Osh. That that we need to accept that there are people that, that do not have somebody. And how how do we then, as a community, yeah. provide the care and support for that person? Yeah. It's doable. It's not easy, but it, I believe it is doable. But that takes, again, that courage, that willingness to care mm. from other people, um, whether it's their peers, their, their colleagues, friends or whatever. Um, if you are prepared to, to step into that, to open that door to that horrible, horrible dark world, if you've got the guts to open that door and step in, to be in that place with that person, um, again, you can be the difference between a person living and dying. And that, I mean, I, I guess this kind of also goes back to why people would choose a career in the 
as a first responder in the first place? Why would you willingly go into a job that's going to expose you to people at their absolutely most vulnerable? And you mentioned earlier, it was just this willingness to care over and above what other, other people have. And I feel like it, the first responders that I've known through my life, they all have that common thing. Like, I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't do that. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the core of a good first responder. Sorry, the core of first responders is, yes, the willingness to care. The core of a really good first responder is the understanding that they need to take great care of themselves to continue to have the courage to have the willingness to care and be able to continue to care for people and be able to switch on, switch off. But also, in today's world, Osh, um, we, you know, the, the pressures upon people are just extraordinary. You know, the way we live, the way we survive with technology, uh, we are damaging ourselves so much because of the lifestyle that most of us are a part of. And that's, we, we need to be cognizant of that, of how damaging our lifestyle is and reducing our capacity to, to maintain good physiological health. I, I just question whether we focus too much on the term mental health and we're losing sight of the fact that we need great physiological health because we need to have good mental health, we need good physical health, vice versa. Yeah, it, mental health is health. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like your brain exists by itself over yeah. in another room and, you know, your body exists over there and you can, you know, destroy one and expect the other to be fine. No, it doesn't work that No, way. no. <laughs> it happens to all be in the same compartment <laughs> moving through the world. Yeah. And every, everything you put in your mouth and do with your body will affect what happens between your ears. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and everything you look at, let's be honest, everything you look at, if you spend all day you know, watching violence on, online or watching porn online or just, you know, a never-ending series of cat videos, that's going to affect your ability to have a conversation with somebody. Yes. It really yeah. is. Yeah. So, so we, as you say, we are exposed to so much today that we're never exposed to before. Yeah. Yeah, just the but, – but I think one of the biggest detractors for our physiological health is, is our lack of sleep. Yeah, yeah. We're an odd species and we have to be unconscious for a third of our lives in yes. order to <laughs> continue. Yeah, yeah. And, and now we know that why we need quality sleep. We used to know it was important to have it, but now we know why it's important yeah. and what happens to us if we don't get the quality sleep. But we, we're still, people, young and old, are still getting to bed so late. They're staying awake so late and it's having a catastrophic effect on our health yeah yeah if, if eight, eight hours is the there's there's no drug that is as good as eight great hours of sleep i have done a bit of research in this area <laughs> tell you man there's nothing that's nothing mm. that feels as good as waking up not in a fit of anxiety it's waking up like oh yeah. i'm awake yeah how good was that sleep? <laughs> after eight straight hours yeah. it's the best yeah. it's the best i'm so grateful that you're here today man um there's, you know, there's something that we haven't kind of really talked about. And it's the thing that kind of did bring you to, to national prominence um, at a time when the, the country was just astonished that someone would do something for another person they'd never met, like you, you did in Coffs Harbour that day when you rescued that kid from the storm drain. Just as I was preparing for this and I was rereading, because I remember, you know, I remember seeing it on the news and then rereading the actual account just is harrowing just even to read it, man. 
What do you know about bravery? What are your thoughts on bravery? It's a question that uh, myself and other bravery award recipients get asked a lot. And, and I, I get back to what we talked about before, which is that willingness to care. For me, that's, a, that's the essential element of courage. And that courage can be defined as going from a place of safety to a place of danger or staying in a place of danger to when you have an option to go to a place of safety. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. But for me, I look at your willingness to care is an indicator of your courage. How much you are willing to care for another human being or another animal or whatever, how much you are willing to care may be an indicator of how courageous you are. So, you know, I know all the Victoria Cross recipients and I know what they did to receive their Victoria Crosses. I know all the Cross of Valour recipients. I know exactly what they did to receive the Cross of Valours. I know what my workmate, Gavin Dengate, did to, to help save Jai and, and save him my life. And I know what Michael Ma, the paramedic, did to help me and Gavin save Jai. I believe that all those guys were willing to give their life to, to save the life of those that they, they ended up saving. So, and, and circumstances uh, are a part of it, time is a part of it. Yeah, and one of the things I struggle with is people have this perception that just because you have a very high award that you are more courageous or more brave than somebody who has a less award, and I totally disagree with that. A lot of it relates to circumstance and time. Sometimes somebody will do something that only takes a few seconds, but doesn't mean they weren't willing to give their life to try and save that person. So I think in a nutshell, it gets back to the, the willingness to care. Do you think we as people, as humans, are hardwired? I mean, we wouldn't be successful as a species on this planet did we not look after each other. Do you feel that it's inside us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There are exceptions. But I think generally, yes. I mean, you yourself, you may not think you are courageous, but the fact that you are so open and honest about the struggles that you have had with mental ill health, it takes enormous courage because you want to give that knowledge and your experience and what you've learned to help others. You are willing to care for people you don't even know. So you are, you are at times, you know, hurting yourself by um, opening up to what you've experienced. Um, you open up old wounds, old scars, but you're still, you've got the guts to do that because you've a lived experience. And it just doesn't have to be in, in a life-saving activity. It could be, I just care about others and I don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to have pain. I don't want them to hurt. And I will do whatever I can to help those. So I have no doubt you have helped thousands and thousands of people and given them hope to live because of what you have been willing to do because you care so much. Very kind of you to say, man. And I, and I have to tell you that uh, I wouldn't have written the book had you not told me to do so. <laughs> well, I think I told you. I think I, I suggested. <laughs> we were, just so for people, we were doing a, we were doing a gig at, uh, it was a, like a private philanthropy thing and I'd been sharing my story a bit publicly but I hadn't got to the nitty-gritty the nitty stuff. And we were in a closed-door 
was this Chatham House Rules? Is that what it's yes. called? So basically, it's like w- w- what you hear here, what who you see here. When you leave here, let it stay here. That's basically it. So I felt very safe in this room of people. I won't say where it was, uh, and I shared, you know. And after the afterwards, you come up to me and said, um, "You really, you're going to help a lot of people if you, when you decide to talk about that publicly, you should write it down because you really help a lot of people." And um, my CEO from saying Jack Heath was sitting next to me. And he's like, I happen to know a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I hadn't thought about that until you, you know, you, you said it that way. And the conviction of which you encouraged me to, to share, I went home and I thought about what had helped me when I was A, getting sober, and then later B, when I was struggling with suicidal ideation. It was hearing the stories of others that made it out the other side. And even though my brain couldn't conceive that there was another side, I actually couldn't picture what life could be like mm. without what was going on in my head. I could not picture a sunny day. It just, it just didn't, didn't exist. It's like, I don't know, trying to, yeah, I didn't know that, couldn't see it. Speaking to others and going, well, look, clearly it is there because they've been there and clearly there's a way to get there because they've figured it out. So why don't I just try and find some people that can show me the way? <laughs> and it was in hearing other stories that gave me an extraordinary, you know, shone the torch down the tunnel, go this way. Yeah. All right. You give people hope. And yeah. at times um, I have first responders come to me just to who are suicidal and they say, Al, you got through it. Can I get through it? Of course you can. Yes, you can. But the fact that you have, and in your position, let's deal with reality, you have an enormous profile in our society, in a very positive profile. That's a really good thing. So a person in your position has an enormous capability to reach so many people and so many people who are there feeling that sense of hopelessness that they can never get better, they can never get through this period, they can never overcome their suicidal ideation. You are a living, breathing, powerful example of yes, you can. So you are giving people something that is so critically important in the recovery stage of hope. But to do what you have done takes enormous courage. <laughs> and that comes from deep within you saying, you know what, I care about my fellow human being and I want to do something to help them. Well, I, I do, Alan, and thank you for saying so. But I do because I believe I, in my heart of hearts, I, I firmly believe that we, we, are, we come out of the womb wanting to look after each other. And I know that's a fact because it's a thing that makes us feel really good, all right? Procreation makes us feel really good. That's why we do it a lot. That's why we have lots of babies. Eating nutritious food makes us feel really good. Our brain recognises it as a thing that, oh, we should do this more, all right? Food companies have tricked those things and, you know, so <laughs> they've, they've flicked a couple of those switches by putting some non-nutritious things that flick those switches. But, but helping other people is a thing that feels really good. It actually feels mm. great to help another human being. You might think you're feeling good by, no, 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 like someone cut me off on my bicycle this morning. I'm like, all right, buddy, you know, that you might feel great because you revved past me in a 50 zone, <laughs> you know, to, to beat me out, yeah. out of the lights. But, you know, how long is that good feeling going to last? It's not going to last very long, is it? Maybe a couple of seconds. Whereas if, it, you know, if you've given a couple of people a ride to work, you get to go home yeah. that night and go, I helped a couple of people get to work today. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it gets back to what we discussed early in our interview, Osh, about the small communities and the power of small communities. Yeah. And how those communities banding together in a time of crisis. Yeah. I mean, two people as a community. True. And if if we can, as as a a little community that grows into a bigger community that grows into our country of Australia. If we can start to rebuild our communities of caring for each other, looking out for each other and helping each other, then I think we can make a significant change. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I would absolutely agree with you because I, I, I've seen how that helps my own health and the health of those around me. And I can, I know that, and again, it's, been proven science that you know isolating ourselves is though it feels safe and feels the right thing to do is actually the worst thing we can do yeah. and it's the quickest path to uh to not getting what you want we're 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 a herd animal yes we are <laughs> we're a mob <laughs> we yeah. are yeah. we truly are yeah. it's a good word there yeah. we are a mob we uh we work best when we're in groups all moving in the same direction mm. that's how we manage to get out of the planes and, and organise each other. Mate, I'm so grateful you came around. Thank you so much oh, for coming to our home. Thanks for the, the opportunity to be here. I mean, I always love seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you, you, you are a very positive person <laughs> and, and I love positive people. I try to be. It wasn't always that way. No, no. But I try, to, I try to keep that. I try to keep it, man. Thank you so much. Great to see you, Great mate. chat. Thanks, brother. That is Alan Sparks. You can find him on Twitter to say... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I heard you on that show. It was good. Or not. I don't know. Say whatever you want. Here's Alan Sparks, A-L-L-A-N-S-P-R-K-E-S. He's also on Instagram, Alan Sparks underscore CV. A big thank you to everybody that helped me make this show today. Rachel Barrett, my incredible show producer. Andy Ma, my fabulous, fabulous audio producer who doesn't flinch when I say, hey man, I want to split it into two. Uh, Mike Mills, who made all the music. Toe Hider is his stage name. And you for listening. Alan for being on the show. Thank you so much for being here. If you need anything, if you want to get on the mailing list, if you want to get on the Facebook group, all that stuff is at uh, osherginsberg.com. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Until then, don't forget that 4PMU will be along shortly. All right. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.